I am the festival director of the Port Ferry Adventure Film Festival. Um, but like we have just really enjoyed hearing, adventure comes in all sorts of ways. And me personally, I also love um, books that are about adventure, both fiction and nonfiction and reading inspiring stories. Um, and I'm so, so excited and so happy to introduce Laura Waters here today, um, who has written a brilliant book called Bewildered about her amazing trek around the entire um, islands of New Zealand and how it inspired her and shaped her and everything. So I'm going to pass off to her as quickly as I can because she's got a lot more exciting things to say. So please help me welcome Laura Waters. Thanks very much. Okay, so I'm going to talk about uh, my journey hiking the length of New Zealand, but um, it was so much more than just a physical hike for me. This was a, a, an emotional journey that fundamentally changed the course of my life. So um, just to give you a bit of background, I was working as an executive assistant to a CEO in the city for eight years. Um, I wasn't particularly enjoying the corporate world and for years I thought there's got to be more to life than this and it was just a, a, a chance reading in a magazine that I discovered this new trail, Te Araroa, which runs from right from the very top of New Zealand to the bottom, 3,000 kilometre route. Um, it had only been opened for two years when I tackled it, so it was very much an unknown quantity. There's only a handful of people that had done it when I started, so I didn't really know what to expect. There wasn't many people who, who'd gone before me. So I um, bought the guidebook to the trail and downloaded a lot of maps just to try and understand what, what I had ahead of me. And I had some pretty scary things like this and it in places it's a hand over hand descent but without exposure in the mountaineering sense of hanging out over a drop and I was like what does that mean you know exactly uh, didn't didn't sound good anyway so this is the um the actual map for that goes with that description and if you know anything about contour lines those little lines are so close together it just means it's like almost vertical so um and I also knew there was going to be a lot of unbridged river crossings so I was pretty uh, pretty anxious about what light lay ahead. So I convinced a girlfriend to come with me. And so this is us in the early November 2013 heading out from Cape Rienga at the north of New Zealand. And ahead of us lay basically 100 kilometres of beach. So the first 100 kilometres is just 90-mile beach, basically just sand. Um, so off we went and um, on the second day my girlfriend started walking a <laughs> bit of a limp. Um, not sure, we still don't know, a bit of a mystery to this day but anyway she decided that she couldn't, couldn't carry on as it was so she said you, you carry on, um, you just do this section, I'll go and see a doctor and I'll meet you at the other end and um, I thought okay fine. I hadn't, I hadn't actually walked longer than 65 kilometres before. That was my longest trip on the overland, trap in, overland track in Tassie. Um, so off I went on my own on my first solo overnight hike and my first hike longer than 65 k's. And um, it's a really long beach. <laughs> this is basically my view for, you know, four and a half days. And... You know, I'd read a, a few hikers who had gone before me complaining that, you know, oh, the sand's too hard, the sand's too soft, it's boring. But I loved the simplicity and just having all of that space to myself. It was exactly what I needed after 
eight years of manic pace in the city and, you know, feeling uh, a bit anxious from all of that. So just the simplicity of putting my tent up wherever I felt in the dunes, there was nothing to tell me when I'd walked, for, you know, far enough for the day. I just said to, okay, I guess I'll just stop here then, find some water. Um, so I loved having all that space. It was a, a brilliant um, time for me. So at the end of those four and a half days, I rendezvoused with my friend and she still wasn't, <clears throat> still wasn't uh, better. So she said, I'm just going to fly home and see my usual doctor. And I was like, really? And she said, but I'll come back. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll keep going. So I went off and I had to go through the northern forests um, from the west coast to the east. And I bumped into a couple of other walkers and together we battled these notoriously dense forests that are just full of mud and overgrown. I don't know if you can grasp there just how steep it is. Um, and basically everything hurt in those first three weeks. Everything hurt, my back, my shoulders, my legs, my arms. Um, even when I lay down at night, everything ached. But, you know, I never considered giving up. That was never an option, but I did think I might have a miserable five months ahead of me here. But I pushed on and it was about 300 kilometres in that I got a, uh, an email from my girlfriend saying that she wasn't coming back. And um, I thought, well, look, I'm, I'm here now. I've done all the planning. Let's just give it a go and see how far I get. So I pushed on and I bumped into other hikers along the way. I uh, walked with these two characters all the way to Auckland. <coughs> so we, uh, excuse me. <laughs> A lot of long, empty, remote beaches there that you can't get to unless you um, sort of walk there, basically. More cowrie forests. And then eventually I got to Auckland, 593 kilometres in, far beyond anything I'd ever walked before. And by now my body was used to it. You know, the, the cankles had subsided and I just thought if I just keep going one day at a time, you know, maybe I can do this. But it was a bit of a shock to the system being back in the city again. Um, I'd sort of become used to the, the sounds of nature, just the wind in the trees, the sound of rivers and birds. And I didn't realize until I got back inside four walls again, how much buildings sort of hum. You know, there's just a, a constant vibration. Um, you're breathing in artificial air. Um, so, but apart from that, just I noticed my inner monologue changed when I'm walking on the streets. And there's just people in your way and you just have a lot less patience, you know, with the, the loss of my peaceful environment came the loss of my peaceful mind as well. So it was just a little reminder that that's the mind I used to live with all the time. So in the, in the North Island, you're pretty much camping all the time, just trying to find a wild bush camp somewhere. And sometimes you get lucky with a nice sea view like this and other times you end up in a a logged wasteland, but you just take whatever you can get. And then sometimes you end up spending a night um, with some locals that you might bump into, which was great, you know. Um, had a night at this sheep farm and they showed us all around and we met the dogs and everything. And then a few days later, we spent a night with these um, sheep shearers and uh, it just really gave us another insight into the Kiwi way of life, which was just really beautiful. So it wasn't all backcountry hiking. It was, you know, meeting the people along the way. So New Zealand's pretty gnarly when it comes to trails. You're really lucky if you get a nice piece of flat, graded, well-defined track like this. 
but more often than not in New Zealand, it's something considerably more challenging. Um, this particular forest, it just went on for hours with all of these vines constantly tripping you up and snagging on your pack. Sometimes you don't so much see the track as just sense it and you're getting you know, ripped to shreds and you sort of walk through for a while and then you think, no, this doesn't feel right, back up to where it last felt right and then you might see a little faint orange marker in the distance. So it's fairly challenging, a lot of tree fall there, which is exhausting to either climb over or climb underneath with a pack on and lots of tree roots as well to negotiate. But I did really like the simplicity of life on the trail, just getting your drinking water from natural sources, swimming in rivers, drinking in rivers. Um, it was just a, a really peaceful way of life. So by Boxing Day, we're just about to go into the Tongariro Crossing um, with a thousand k's under my belt. And this is what it looks like on a good day. It's probably one of New Zealand's best one-day hikes. It's high um, alpine volcanic desert. So you've got these cones and craters and um, beautiful lakes. So this is what it looks like on a good day. And this is what it looked like when I went through. Um, going up Red Crater in the, in the mist there. Another highlight was paddling the Whanganui River, which is actually an official part of the trail. Um, so for six days, we did about 200 rapids, 200 kilometres all the way out to the sea. Um, and just absolutely stunning scenery there. You've got all these waterfalls bursting through the greenery, um, great campsites. I could sit down. I could sit down for six days and like carry wine and a magazine or some other such luxury so that was uh, made a really nice break and then after 1600 k's reached the Tararua range which is notoriously windy it's close where it is between um, you know very close to the split between the two islands you get wind funneling through so um, we knew that we had to have good conditions for it a lot of it is above the tree line and you're really exposed so um, you can really get hit by the wind. We climbed up through this really dense forest, which um, just felt like it was alive, like you're walking through a living, breathing being because there was just growth everywhere. And then you get out onto the tops where it's just, you know, enormous and, and, and exposed. But um, we did, we, we could hear the wind rustling around a hut one night and we're like, you know, is this, is this normal windy or is this dangerous windy? And we didn't realise until we kind of got, you know, out there and had a look that it was dangerous windy. But um, by that time we were already committed and it was just really a matter of staggering a couple of steps and then just bracing against the gusts, which just sound like a jet engine screaming in your ears. Um, and just, I actually got blown off my feet a couple of times um, in the wind. So it was quite sobering, but we made it. Um, but just you feel really small in that kind of environment. But it's kind of nice to feel your, um, you know, flimsiness in the face of nature. We're so used to having full control of our environment in the city. So I, I still enjoyed that in a weird kind of way. And uh, made it to Wellington finally. So one island down and one, one to go. And um, arriving in the South Island, I, I knew, you know, the South Island it was going to be full of mountains and a lot more unbridged river crossings and challenges, but it was a nice easy start actually on the Queen Charlotte track, which is sort of a fairly easy three-day track, lots of nice high 
um, high walks on ridge lines with beautiful views over the sounds. But then it was time to get down to business. So the Richmond Ranges is sort of one of the big challenges on the whole route. Rugged and though well, mar well marked is unformed in places consistently above 1500 metres and with many steep exposed sections and stream crossings. So as you can see, there's not a lot in the way of knowing where the trail is here. You're just sort of um, making your way from one orange marker pole to another, which sometimes you can see and sometimes you can't. If the visibility is bad, then um, makes things harder. There's a lot of sidling. Um, we used to call it suicidling because it's just like, you know, ball bearings, that, that sort of grit on a steep slope like that. And if you get it wrong, you just, you're just going to slide all the way. These are, this is another excerpt from the trail notes. Um, there's a river crossing on a rock chute just above a four metre waterfall. The water is flowing fast down the chute and if you lose footing, you go over the waterfall. Also something I don't want to read <laughs> at the beginning of a day's walk. Um, but yeah, just bit by bit, we just tackle these challenges. Got through, the, um, got through the Richmond Ranges and the next challenge was Nelson Lakes National Park, which is also challenging but has some absolutely stunning scenery. That is um, the hut down there at the bottom. Has some beautiful huts with amazing views. So it was that kind of scenery that just really takes the pain away, you know, when you're walking for eight hours a day uphill, uphill and down, to just to see that kind of scenery makes it all worth it. It was really sobering because as we came through this section, um, we did learned that another TA hiker two weeks before had actually died in this spot got um, nobody knows exactly what happened to him but he ended up in the lake at the bottom there um, so you know he was an experienced hiker he had all the required equipment you know search and rescue could only speculate as to what happened whether there was a random gust of wind or he tripped and fell but um, it was really sobering for us because he was just another hiker like us you know, it could have been any of us um, so it was a reminder that we, we couldn't afford to stuff up. So here um, we're just really following the contours of the land to know where to go. And at the end of the valley here, we, there was pretty much nowhere to go except up and over, which is another very steep climb. Um, the track climbs a steep scree slope in a direct fashion. It's just, <laughs> just go straight up basically. Um, but up the top, just spectacular views. It's one of my favourite sections. And then it was a matter of coming back down again. And if you remember that map I showed you at the beginning, this is what it looks like in real life. So it was, it was fairly uh, rock climby. So by the middle of the South Island, um, the trail starts to take a, a far more direct route and it was starting to speed up a little bit. Felt like it was speeding up. And I remember standing at this river and I'd seen um, a river like this in my guidebook back home before I left. <clears throat> and it was the kind of picture that, you know, rattled the butterflies in my stomach. But as I stood here at this moment, I, it, it just felt like home to me. You know, by that point, um, all my fears had sort of melted away and I was just, just felt like that's where I belonged. It was in the middle of the South Island that I said goodbye to a few hiking buddies that I'd been walking with for a while. And I was about to go into this eight-day section on my own and I, I, I confess that I got pretty anxious about that because it was one of the more challenging sections of the whole trip. I knew from people who had gone ahead of me that I was going to have about 
60 unbridged river crossings to do. Um, there was going to be no defined track on the ground in places, so navigational challenges, um, head-high tussock grass in places, and a crossing of the Rangatata River, which is a, a braided river valley about four kilometres wide. So the challenge here is that you might cross one of these braids and then you get to the next one and find it's too deep to cross and river levels can change quickly there. Before I left home, I thought, you know, I read about this and I thought, well, how bad can it be? You know, I'll just, how quickly can the water rise? I'll just run across it, you know. But it, it took me two hours to cross this river when I did eventually get to it. Anyway, so I knew I had all these challenges ahead of me and I was on my own again for the first time since the North Island. So this was my first night um, alone and it was all going well. It was a really hot day. Um, I washed and dried all of my clothes in the space of about half an hour by the river. Uh, headed out the next day. As you can see, the clouds are starting to roll in a bit here. And um, by late afternoon, I could feel this wall of cold air coming up the valley. And I could see there was rain coming. And I thought, oh, I'll just put my windproof, waterproof jacket on. I only had half an hour to go to the hut. You know, how bad can it get? I'll get a bit wet, so what? Well, I don't have photos of what happened next because I was too busy trying to keep it together. But basically that wall of cold air hit me and there was hail in it and then the hail turned to snow and the, the wind was just blowing a gale. And I just really struggled, basically. Um, it's amazing how quickly things can go downhill um, you always hear about how New Zealand weather can change in a heartbeat, but to experience it firsthand was like really sobering. I reckon you could have chopped my fingers off and I wouldn't have felt them. They were absolutely numb and I had no visibility, just the snow blowing in my face, the wind it was just painful on me. I had to cross a couple of rivers to get to this hut and the water felt warm on my feet because I was just so frozen to the core inside and it just happened so quickly. Anyway lesson learned. Um, so I uh, rendezvoused with a, a French guy and we walked together for a few days through the Canterbury High Pains, which is lovely and flat and you've got all the pretty stuff on the side. So that was a nice little rest. Then we climbed up again and we're heading towards the <clears throat> highest point of the whole track, Stag Saddle. And I woke up one morning and there was fresh snow on the peaks and the wind was just whistling around again. And I'm I, uh, I didn't really want to, was a bit unsure about whether it was wise to push on and head over this saddle. And my French buddy was like, come on, it'd be fine. And, and I was like, no, you know, it, I could see the wind was coming from the northwest. It wasn't, wasn't good conditions. The clouds had this funny texture and colour to them. They looked like the same clouds I'd seen a few days before. And so it was a bit of a turning point for me because rather than just stick with someone for the company I kind of made my own decision and listened to my own gut and I said no I'm not going to go and just as he was getting ready to go it started dumping snow again so we both just went back to bed in the hut um, and uh, later on in the afternoon it did clear and the clouds are still boiling around and um, my friend prepared to leave again <coughs> And I was still not sure and I was like, oh, will I, won't I? You know, it's, you know, not much can go wrong in this hut but then it would be nice to get walking again. And he was like, I'll lend you my gloves. And I'm like, done, okay, let's go. So we pushed on um, and it did snow again 
but this time I was bundled up for it big time so um, I could cope with it. So we got as far as Royal Hut and there we stayed for three nights and two days while the snow howled and the wind howled around outside and there was no um, this well there was a fireplace but there was no wood at all so it was a really cold couple of days <clears throat> and eventually on the third morning the skies cleared and I couldn't wait to get out of there so I climbed up and there I am at Stag Saddle um, highest point of the whole trip at 1925 meters and just beautiful beautiful views that was my reward for house arrest for a couple of days and so at the end of that section I sort of had a bit of a realization you know uh, that I'd gotten through this eight-day section on my own and I made it you know like I, I got lost and I found myself again and I got freezing cold but you know the sun comes out so um, lessons learned and I just had a lot more confidence in in myself so I carried on um, solo and walked this is past Lake Pukaki with um, Mount Cook in the background there. Into the, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Ahuriri River Valley. Um, and it was just beautiful. I just had all of this space to myself and, and I felt completely at home there. I knew I had everything I needed on my back. I had shelter, I had food, I had water from the river. And I just pitched my tent out there and had it all to myself. So by the time I got to uh, Wanaka, I was really starting to feel the end of the, the track coming up and I didn't want it to end because you know, I'd never been happier than I was out there with just one bag of belongings, one outfit, no makeup, no mirrors, no media, no noise. It was just blissful. The section between Wanaka and Queenstown is linked by the Motatapu track, which is particularly hilly. Um, this, this ridge line, that's actually got a little trail going along the top so you're just following these little knife edge ridges to get over it and then down the valley and then back up again oh yeah that's one of the trails just over the top there that peak and by the end of the trail it just started to rewind as it started at the beginning it was back through all of the the mossy forests back along those long empty beaches and it sort of really sandwiched perfectly sandwiched together everything that happened you know, in that time, in those five months, I was walking it alone again and the conditions were the same and I just couldn't believe how much had changed in that time. So eventually I made it after 150 days, got to Bluff at the bottom of the South Island and then it was time to go back to the city and it was just such a crazy contrast. That's my old office building there where I used to work. Um, so the, the contrast between those two lives... Um, was just so great and I couldn't fit myself back into that old life again. So I went to the Solomon Islands instead. Um, I quit my corporate job and um, I'd, always intend, I'd always wanted to write a book ever since I was a, a little tacker. And um, I thought, well, this trip will make a, a perfect story to, to write about. And I couldn't do that while I was doing a full-time job. So I thought, I'll just give myself a year out and um, live as cheaply as I can. So I went to the Solomon Islands and I was doing just a, a couple of days um, volunteer work in exchange for a bungalow. And I, uh, in my spare time, I could work on my own book and have fun, go, go snorkeling with the, the sharks and the turtles. And then I went back to New Zealand and I worked at a forest camp um, 
stacking firewood and cleaning toilets for a couple of hours a day in exchange for my own cabin. And the rest of the time I wrote and I went hiking and I had fun. And then I met a guy who was sailing around the world on a yacht. So I hopped on board and sailed for seven weeks up the Queensland coast. I went and did more hiking in the, in the outback. And uh, I did a lot of house sitting. Um, this is in Christchurch in New Zealand again. So I would look after other people's pets in exchange for accommodation at their houses. And then I got to work on my book. So it was like a great way to, to travel and to keep my expenses down and, and to, to work on my passion. And I started writing articles for magazines as well, um, which is now what I do full time as a, a freelance travel writer. So I'd never intended to, you know, have a complete shift in, in, in my life direction. But I think when you just sort of take one step in the right direction, things unfold. And, you know, for me as a, as a writer now, I earn a fraction of what I did as in the corporate world, but I'm a hundred times happier. And that to me is wealth, that's success. You know, if you just let go of what you think you should be doing and getting caught up in the, in the messages we constantly get told and just do what, makes your heart happy um, so that to me is is what success so it's been five years now since I um, quit that corporate job and yeah never never would have seen all this coming so what did I learn from being out there well being out in nature for five months away from media I mean there was nothing there to remind me of who I was I had no familiar relationships, no job, no possessions, nothing to tell me who I was. And I wasn't constantly being fed messages from advertising or whatever. So my whole identity just fell away and I could rebuild myself. I could hear the voice underneath that, you know, had something to say and, and just follow that path. I try not to let fear get in the way now. Um, you know, I was so... Fear just shaped my life beforehand. You know, we, we don't take challenges because, well, what happens if you fail or whatever? But now I just like, just give it a go, be kind to yourself. Yeah, you might stuff up, but you know what? Just shift direction and have another go. And I try not to worry about things until I've got all of the information and I know, you know, I'm not just having baseless fear, but, uh, you know, I'm making good calculated decisions. That's how I try to live now. And trusting my gut. Um, if... If you can tune out from all of the other noise around you, you can listen to what your gut really thinks. And that's often got a lot more wisdom than we, you know, allow it to, to um, you know, give it credit for. So, you know, none of the amazing adventures I've had in the last five years would have happened if I'd stayed at that safe office job in the city. You know, I couldn't have kept doing that job and going, oh, but I'd really love to be a travel writer one day. You know, I had to take that step and get on the path that led to where I wanted to go. Um, so, yeah, I just try and do that now. You don't have to see the whole route of where you're going. Just take one step and things tend to fall into place. That's what I find. And so, yes, this is the book that I wrote, which came out a couple of months ago. Um, there's a whole lot more to the story than I've just said. All the, all the juicy bits are in there. All the embarrassing bits are in there. <laughs> but um, we're going to have a chat now with Anne-Marie and she's going to dig a little bit deeper so she, she might pull out some of those juicy bits. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you need a little drink of water? I will. 
come up. So I think before we dig deeper, I think we should offer an opportunity for you to ask questions because there are so many questions that I've got, but you've probably got a lot too, so we don't want to double up. (coughs) Does anybody want to ask Laura about her trip? Yep. Laura, I was wondering if your tank got heavier or lighter. (laughs) (laughs) It got lighter, actually. Um, I mean, I, you probably see I had a pretty weird-looking pack. It's got front pockets on it. So it's really good at spreading the weight. And I just – I call it my magic pack because I don't know how it does it, but it just – I re- really reckon it sort of magics away about five kilos. So um, it um, spreads the weight well. But I think, that, you know, the, the more you walk, the stronger you get. And, um, yeah, I was just powering along at the end. I could have kept going. It was great. Um, you, know, you hear about a lot of long-distance hikers who just do long-distance hikes back-to-back. And beforehand, I thought, wow, that's kind of crazy. But having done it, sure. I mean, you could just keep walking indefinitely. So the body really adapts. Yeah. Any other <coughs> questions? Yeah. There's a girl at the back. Yeah. What's your question? Port Ferry is fabulous. I love it. I got off, <laughs> I got off the bus yesterday and within about 10 minutes I'm walking past real estate windows going, hmm, <laughs> what could I get here? Sadly, not much. But, um, yeah, no, it's fa- fabulous. I live on the outskirts of Melbourne now in the suburbs um, and it's, you know, ideally I'd just love to be in a more natural, smaller community like this. Um, but, yeah, that's where I am at the moment. But, mm. yeah. Out in nature and where you're close to the sea and the mountains, that's what I like, yeah. It's gorgeous. What's not to love? Uh, Jezza? So um, since walking the trail, how does it feel when you come to places like Melbourne and uh, see these insanely huge cities that we, like I'm a piggy, I'm from a very small town, and I never realised how many people are on this planet until I actually Yeah, I'm not – I don't really like being around a lot of people. I just find it really overwhelming and not so much the people but the way we live. Um, I find people are really – you know, we're all manic and we're moving quickly and we're trying to do, do, do all the time and we're buying stuff and we're – you know, I just find all of that quite obscene when I just, you know, see how much we, you know, just unnecessarily shop and consume and things like that. Um, It was just such a shock to the system. You know, I'd hiked for about three months and then before I picked up a newspaper and it it just hit me like a... I was in Tekapo and I picked up a newspaper and it hit me like a sledgehammer to the gut and I was just in tears. And it was probably just a normal day's news, but I was just like, what the hell is going on, you know? But you lived in the city before you yeah. went on the walk. So, but so it becomes normalised. Yeah, so you adapted. Yeah. Um, and how did you manage that when you were living in the city? Where, how did you, where did you put all of those big feelings about the city? Before I left? Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. You know, maybe I was carrying it and maybe that was part of the reason that I wasn't totally happy beforehand but it you have to get outside of yourself before you can see something with fresh eyes and 
as I say, I think it all seemed kind of normalised and we probably have to do that to an extent to be able to cope with the chaos and the, the hate and the fighting around the world and, the, you know, like you have to switch off to it a bit to be able to, to cope with it. But when you go away and all of that human story and unnecessary drama falls away and then you come back to it with fresh eyes, you're just like... I felt like I'd walked in on a bun fight. It was like, just, whoa. So that's even worse than than getting caught in snowstorms. (laughs) Like on the worst possible day, because there were some fantastically (coughs) worst possible days in there. (coughs) That is even worse, being in the city, than than facing that. I think so, because it's, and it's unnecessary, you know. It's just, we, uh, you know, seem to be somewhat addicted to drama at at times. Um, You know, even say on TV or reality TV and there's always this hype and oh let's get people to cry or get get them angry at each other you know I don't I don't understand that but I guess there's a real artificiality to it yeah isn't yeah Whereas and I just you don't get that out there uh, yeah that's it nature doesn't do anything unnecessary it's 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 all about survival and and that's what I found you know when I was in nature my I felt my energy was being recalibrated by nature because it was just uh, nature doesn't do anything unnecessary and I was just tuning into that and, you know, all of this mind chatter, unnecessary mind chatter just started to just melt away. It was like, you know, being in the presence of some spiritual guru, you know, who you've only got to be in the same room with them and you feel calm. That's what it was like. Well, you did describe the forest there as living, a living and yeah. breathing thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. Is that the hardest part? reintegrating back because you mentioned just before that you know people who go on hikes and hikes they walk and walk yeah and while elements of that walk look incredibly incredibly hard it also looks really peaceful and really simple and that's really appealing exactly it is and how hard is it integrating back uh very much so and i'm basically i didn't want to you know i felt almost drunk at times out there because I was just so light in being. I was laughing at all sorts of stupid things. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then when I, you know, I kept getting these emails towards the end saying, oh, back to reality, hey. And I was like, why? Why do I have to go back to reality? Um, so that's why I basically changed my life. And, mm. you know, I mean, I, I exited out of the corporate world and there's only so much I can control. There's still going to be people fighting around the world and, having arguments and, you know, road rage and un- un- other unnecessary things. But I just try and create my little pocket of niceness and try and spend more time with other people who want to live a simple, happy life and spread that and and just, yeah, try and control it as much as I can. And I spend more time in nature as well, which always sort of rebalances me. So mm-hmm. it just puts in things into perspective. And there was a question from Athena. Do you still have your question? Thank you. Well, the, there's probably one relationship you're talking about in my 
previous life and I don't have anything to do with that relationship anymore. So, yes, um, I think I think it's it's just made my friendships more positive because everybody loves the fact, you know, what I've experienced and how I've changed my life since. It's kind of inspiring to a lot of them. So, and they're happy for me to, to do it and live my life. I don't think I've, it's not like I've, cut out loads of friends or anything or changed anything different I'm just just now I am living as me and it's funny actually because I did hike with this German girl for about a month and um I I mean I finished the trail five years ago and I caught up with her in March this year first time I'd seen her since the trail and she messaged me afterwards and said um I almost didn't recognize you you know you, you look more like you if that makes sense and I was like yeah, I know exactly what you mean because I feel like me for the first time in my, like my whole life, which is kind of scary. I mean, fantastic that I finally got there, but scary to think I'm, without that hike, I might quite feasibly have gone through a whole life without really stripping all the noise away and finding out who I was and what I really wanted to do and be. Um, so I'm super grateful to have done that. So I think, you know, once sometimes... Being happy is seen as a selfish thing, but I think it's far better. I'm a far better person than I was before. I have more patience. I, I can be of better use to other people by following my happiness. Yeah. Mm. Any other questions? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, the track tends to go through or near a town roughly once a week on average. So then you can just resupply there. Um, sometimes it might be three or four days. Sometimes the longest stretch was about 10 days food I had to carry. Um, yeah. And then I would just resupply in like little local IGAs or something and just get light dehydrated packaged food, you know, dehydrated potato, ramen noodle soup. Ate a ton of cheese because that's good calorie calorie intake. I was doing half a kilo of chocolate a week, half a kilo of nuts, <laughs> half a kilo of cheese, um, as well as all my usual food, and I still lost a ton of weight. So that was that was good. Um, shoes. I had one pair of boots for the entire trip. They were dead by the end of it, but they lasted. Um, a solo, a solo boots. Yeah. Um, big fan of a solo, or oh, they suit my narrow feet anyway. But other people had trail runners and they would go through like three pairs or something. So I think, you know, on the in the in some sections, like where you've got the long beach or whatever, like I was really um, naughty because I had I, I had got given the trail name two shoes because I started out with boots and then I bought some runners as well which was a massive luxury, but I just couldn't deal with having boots on some of those long, flat sections where there's no variation in the trail. My feet were just killing me. So, um, But come to South Island, got rid of the runners and just stuck to the boots, and I'm glad I did because, um, you know, when the terrain is really gnarly like that and you've got a ton of river crossings, you, it's you, I really appreciate, appreciated having that support um, against, you know, if you're just plunging your foot into a river, sandwiching it between some rocks, you want some support around your feet, not just runners in my mind. Yeah. Mm. 
I did. I had some little slip-on toms, which are really light. Yeah. Do they have leeches in New Zealand? No. 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 I didn't come over here. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, I mean, New Zealand has no native mammals. Um, so the only other critters you've got there are introduced things like stoats and possums and goats and um, deer. But uh, really, you know, a lot of birds... Nope. Mm. Which was good because there was a lot of very high tussock to walk through and I was thinking, geez, you wouldn't be doing this in Australia, that's for sure. <laughs> you had your hands full as it was. Uh, there was another question over there. Yeah, love the book. Thank um, you. Hmm. Well, my website's got a whole itemised list of everything that's in my pack, Soul Trekkers. Um so, yeah, I had about 11 or 12 kilos of belongings. That's including the pack. Um, so I've got a mattress and a tent and a little stove and gas. And I just had one, one set of clothes that I was wearing and then one set of sort of light thermals to wear in bed at night. I had a camera and a diary and um, I like to take a little chunk of Lush massage bar. That's my little luxury because... At night, if you just spend like five minutes rubbing your ITBs and your calves and your feet, it's amazing how much that just like regenerates you the next day. So that was my little luxury. But basically everything in my pack I used. You know, you, you don't have anything in there that you're not using on a regular basis, otherwise you get rid of it. Yeah. That's amazing that you packed like that, given that you'd only ever taken one other walk um, before, which you said was in, which was in Tasmania, the Overland Track. Yeah. You obviously sound like you did a lot of research and spoke to the right people. I did a lot of research, but I, I mean, I did also <laughs> post a, a few things home after two weeks on the trail. I was like, plate? I don't need a plate. Get rid of that. I don't need chafing cream. You know, some people tell me, oh, you're going to need this, you're going to need that. Mm. Um, it's very much a personal thing um, with hiking. A lot of people try and tell you that they've got the perfect setup, they've got the perfect kit. There is no one perfect kit because we've all got different needs and values. Some people like to be warm. Some people just like to have the lightest pack. Um, some people are happy eating pasta and tomato sauce every day for five months. And some people like me like to have, you know, at least one piece of something fresh a day. So, yeah, my, I sort of splurged on having some fresh fruit and veg um, which I could get away with because of my pack system, much to the outrage of other ultralight hikers around me. Like, that's ridiculous. I think, you're just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> that's a spirit. <laughs> yeah. Did I mention I dislocated my shoulder? You didn't Did mention that. No, twice. You glossed over that. Oh, gosh, yeah, that, that wasn't... That's never nice. Um, I had... Um, I'd, because I'd had a history of knee problems, I'd spent a lot of time beforehand trying to build up my glutes and and you know get some balance in here. And I think uh, on, on a lot of the steep hills in the North Island, um, my glutes still weren't strong enough, and they just switched off, and all of the tension was going onto my thighs. And it, for there was one particular day, my birthday, 
which it felt like somebody had stuck a knife into my thigh and was twisting it with every step. It was just intense. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, I thought, well, if it's like this tomorrow, I'm, I'm going to have to take some time out. But I took some anti-inflammatories, went to sleep, woke up, and the, the fairies do their work at night, and you wake up and it's like the slate's been wiped clean and off you go again. Mm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I had another time... I got lost in a forest, didn't get out till 9 o'clock at night. That was like an 11-hour day or something, and I was in so much pain. I had big flaps of skin hanging off my feet, and I was absolutely exhausted. And then you wake up in the, ne the next day, and you're ready to go again. I don't know what happens, but it happens. Yeah. And any other – I think Athena had a question. Did you have a question, Festival Director? <laughs> go on. Well, I think I do see sometimes on hiking forums, oh, I'm thinking about doing this trip. What can I do to train? Walk. Just walk. <laughs> like, just do a hell of a lot of walking. You just got to get your feet used to that daily impact. Um, and the other thing is not so much in physical training, but just know what to expect. There's so many people who start this hike and then you see them posting online, oh, what? There's like 100 kilometres of sand. And I'm like, really? You <laughs> yeah um so just know what to expect so that you can prepare for it too just mentally if nothing else um, make sure that you've got the skills to do it you know have you got river crossing skills do you know how to use a map and compass um, um those sorts of things are important and number one expect that it's going to be hard you know it is going to piss down with rain one day and you're going to be miserable but you know, get through it because it'll, it'll get better again. There's a lot of people bail because I don't know why. They bail after like a couple of days. And to me, if you pull out that quickly, you are never cut out to do a long hike in the first place because, of course, there's going to be challenges. So, you know, mental preparation. Just know that you're going to need to be strong for it. I guess think about those four walls that you'll be going back to. You know, that's enough of preparation, isn't it? That's just like, that's horror. <laughs> Anything's better than that. Uh, another question? Well, there was one forest that reduced me to tears in the North Island because I'd been going for about 11 days without a break anyway, 11 days of eight hours a day in steep hilly terrain. <clears throat> and there was this forest and it was really overgrown and I was, you know, getting cut up on my arms, bleeding, and there was literally only wide enough for one boot. That's how narrow the track was. And I was trying to walk fast because I was trying to keep up with these two guys who'd, um, you know, had a rest day a few days before. And I thought, oh, God, if I lose them, I could lose the whole track. So I'm trying to walk fast and I'm getting scratched and I'm 
slipping over and I slipped and fell hard on this rock and I just thought, I've just... it just all came out so um that wasn't a particularly nice day but I don't know in a sick kind of way I kind of like the challenges you know when I got blown off my feet in the Tararua it was like that was kind of scary you know um I was hanging on to rocks and grass just trying not to get blown away um but then afterwards it just makes you feel alive you know you're just living real and raw and how how the world used to be before we controlled it or try to control it and contain it. Mm. Yep. Uh, did you ever think about having to be frightened by having a frozen pipe or a baby or something like that? And if so, I didn't make... Now I feel bad that I didn't make a snowman. Um, yeah, no, I was... Uh, well, look, we did make some snowballs at, at, at when we got up to that highest point of the whole track and, and threw them around. I just like looking at it, you know, looking at the snow. It just makes everything look really pretty. Um, but before I did the hike, I had visions of, you know, hugging trees and taking photos and creative photos and lying in the grass pondering the meaning of life. But while I was there, I was power walking uh, and I walked a lot faster on that trail than I do normally if I'm just doing a day hike. Um, you know, we were walking swiftly, which, you know, when you come back to town, a lot of people have trouble keeping up with a thru-hiker because you're just in that mentality of walk, 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 walk. And you have to do that because, you know, I was walking eight hours a day, six days a week, roughly, over five months to... I started in the spring in the north and I had to finish before winter came in. So I finished in mid-April or early April. So I didn't really have time to stop and... Makes no man, unfortunately. <laughs> and there was a question over here. Uh, hi. Hi. Look, I've been in New Zealand for four and a half years, and uh, you like living in Auckland for four years. Mm-hmm. And I said to my kids, they said, uh, you know, there are no apple shops in New Zealand. Is that right? Where, where was that? Where were you living? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's dangerous. Yes. It's dangerous. You have to go with experienced people. Yeah. But it is a great, great experience. Yeah. And I can do fancy, touristy things. I just do backcountry. Yeah. 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 No, it's a. I think it's a a great teacher being out in the wilds. And particularly in New Zealand, because it's it's such a raw country, mm. you know, back country wise. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Another question: How you started to write? Like you said that you uh, all your life you were thinking about writing, and then actually, yeah. how it started. Like <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually know anything about writing. I just knew I wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah. How it happened? Like well, I bought myself a laptop, and then I thought, I I guess I'll just write some stuff and then I wrote about 40,000 words 
And then a friend pointed out that the average book is 60 to 90,000 words and I was only up to day eight of my trip. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to have to have a rethink here. So I then I started reading books about how to write books and understanding what makes a story and and then I kind of plotted it out. Well, all of these fun things happened, but if they're not critical to telling the story, you know, of and, and a story is not just what happened, but how what happened changes you. So I had to talk about who I was at the beginning and why and who I was at the end and how I got to that point. So when you talk then about the things that happen en route, you can only talk really about... To, to keep it engaging, you have to just talk about the things that are relevant to that narrative arc. So it was a big learning curve, but I'm happy with it. Because you're also looking at yourself... At your ugly bits. Yeah, I didn't want to go there. No one wants to look at their ugly bits. But everybody <laughs> likes looking at your ugly bits, so that's why I had to do it. <laughs> yeah, very brave. Yeah. Um, all sorts of stuff. I, I, I was in two minds about whether to, to take music with me because I thought I just should tune into the sounds of nature. But um, sometimes if you're having a really hard day or it's a really long day and you put the tunes in and it gives you another couple of hours juice in the tank. It just really revives you. So I just I had mixed songs, bit of, bit of house music, bit of jazz, bit of all sorts of stuff, yeah, just whatever I felt like. Mm. And I sang a lot too. <laughs> when there was nobody around, I'd, sometimes I'd have to stop walking so that I had enough puff to go ah, and sing to the mountains. A great freedom in that too. When there's no no one can hear you scream. <laughs> yep. I was wondering, just harking back to the previous question, uh, if you were to grab your art property in terms of your own development from beginning to end, would that grab correspond with the topography you were going to? Hmm. <laughs> um. No, it wouldn't. Because I guess I'm going to just going to plot out. My emotional, I mean, my emotional um, journey was sort of started way down as a low and then gradually rose right up here till I was blissfully happy and then I just plunged back down when I found myself on my own going to this really tricky bit and, and then it was, um, and then I just climbed again but to a, to a much higher peak once I'd finished the whole trail. So, yeah, emotionally it was a, a slow rise and then a crash and then a, soaring after that but the actual TA was just like, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> all the way and we know <coughs> that walking is beautiful and it's um, while there's the chaos there's also the simplicity and that's beautiful how do you now get that in everyday life well I try not to make uh, I try and make sure that my life is not so busy that I forget who I am or where I'm going and that's is a con that requires a conscious effort because it's so easy to get caught up in caught up in the busyness and overcommitting yourself because although I'm at this place in my life everyone else is still operating on that old paradigm you know of being busy and overstretching themselves and I have to consciously say no I I need to do I need to go for a hike or um, I don't want to be too busy this week because I'm feeling a bit stressed. Can you say or whatever? That? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, mm. yeah. Just set boundaries, mm. yeah. But I mean, you know, I don't have a proper job either. <clears throat> I'm self-employed, so I can 
<clears throat> work from home. If I wake up at six in the morning and I want to start working then, great. If I'm feeling like I need to sleep in, I can do that as well. So I've got that flexibility. Mm. Yeah. Any other questions? I didn't, no. I mean, I think New Zealand didn't have any human settlement in, 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 until about a thousand years ago. Um, but I, what I did feel was <clears throat> that without any reminders of the modern world, my human story fell away and I felt very connected to the environment. I felt connected to everything, to the, to the land beneath me, to the wind, to the rivers... And I felt just like one more animal out there and I could hear the calls of other animals and birds and I just felt like we were all connected as one and that was just a really unique, you know, I hadn't felt anything like that before and it feels magic. So, yeah, that's what I'm constantly chasing and I can drop back down into that pretty quickly now. If I go for a hike on my own, a multi-day hike, I can slide back into that fairly quickly and it's a great place to be to to not be human with a story and to just be just be part of part of nature is it difficult hiking as a woman um alone do you feel no no no, no i mean um i feel uh, like unsafe the only time in i feel uns- you can feel unsafe in the city yeah mm. and the only time i felt unsafe is if i was camping near where a road is you know, um, where where people could access it. But out in the middle of nowhere on my own, fine. I feel feel great out there, yeah. Mm. Well, there are no snakes or scary creatures. No, there's so. nothing to be scared <laughs> of, yeah. <laughs> Any other questions, yeah? yeah. Given that you have to read some things out of the book, other than if you had a, a juicy bit that didn't make it into the book, <laughs> just for us. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you know, I've thought about putting all the outtakes it was really hard to cut out some stuff I'm like oh but I really like that bit but I can see how you know it's just distracting from the from the overall storyline so I just saved it in another word document and maybe I'll do something with those bits one day but um juicy bits hmm no I can't I can't think of a juicy bit right now but yeah 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 I'll put out some essays or something yeah yeah Well, I was actually – I uh, took long service leave from my job to do this hike. So I was getting paid for half of the time I was out there. So, um, yeah, it was it, it was good because I knew that at least I had a job to come back to, that, I, you know, I didn't have to worry about money when I came back. But as it turned out, I, um, you know, only lasted four months before I quit. So – and, you know, I was – worried about the financial aspect but I just thought even if it costs I'm going to take a year out and even if it costs me money to write this book I'll do it because I just want to do it for myself Um, but you know even in that first year I didn't go backwards financially because I just wasn't spending any money you know I was living in a way that all I had to pay for was food and I'd write some stories for some magazines or something and and then I realized that 
you know, if, if you don't spend a lot of money, you don't need a lot of money because I didn't have a car. I didn't have rent to pay. I didn't buy any clothes. I have no interest in owning stuff. So, like, what's left to buy? Um, just really food. And, you know, it was... It was hard at times, you know, because I do like to go out for dinner and have a glass of wine or and massages. The, these are the only things that I was missing in my world. But although I, um, I didn't have those things, I had freedom and I had the freedom to do things that inspired me and that made me feel rich. And so, yeah, I was, I was happy to make that sacrifice. That's interesting because freedom is not something that's... Uh I, uh, highly valued, but yet you know it's not something that we talk about. Oh, let's it's let's go out for a glass of glass of wine. Let's have dinner. Oh, love your new clothes. You know, freedom is not necessarily something we can see. Mm. Um, I'm wondering how that goes in the, in not the real world because it's definitely not the real world. But yeah. but in the city, when, when you when you're back there. Um, yeah. Well, I felt very much a fish out of water when I came back. Um. I just could not relate to, you know, I'd see billboards, you know, some guy holding a phone, get that new get that new phone feeling every year and he was like, yeah. And I was like, what? It like just did not make sense to me at all. Um, you know, water cooler chat about what you did on the weekend, shopping, shopping for amusement. I just couldn't relate to any of that. Um Sorry, I forgot the start of your question now. I don't think there was a question. <laughs> um, it was just a statement. Um, yeah, at the back. Can I continue on with that? Because I'm similarly, and I'm interested in how other people have compared to you coming back in other situations. Like I, I can relate to your sense of um, and appreciating simplicity and freedom and not having such terrible downsides. However, something I would struggle with is other people's reactions to coming and get really What are there? <clears throat> what are their reactions? <coughs> are they um, what giving you a hard time, or the? I'm just not sure how to relate. Right. Um, and really giving your uh, rejection more of a strong. Uh, oh right, yeah, yeah. It's hard to match that now because you're interested. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 That is hard. It is hard when you get that kind of clarity and you come back and you see people living these stories that they've created for themselves, these little tornadoes, and and you just have to, I guess, let them let them run with it. But I think because everybody knows I've been out out bush for five months, they're probably expecting me to be a little bit weird afterwards. Um, Singing to yourself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but basically, I don't care. So that's the joy. Um, the only thing I struggle with is being in the city. Like I still don't make a lot of money uh, as a freelance writer, trying to keep up with friends. You know, if you they're going out for dinner or somebody's birthday, let's go and do this really expensive evening out. Um, they're, they're sort of the things that I struggle with. But the rest of it, I think, I don't know, everyone seems to be really coming along for the ride and, and um, they're happy to ask me questions about how I live my life. Everyone seems to to like it. So no, no one's made things hard for me, luckily. Hmm. Any further questions? Yep, do at the front. I do, yes. Yeah. I, I never had a social media account before I did this trip, but the girl I started with... Um, 
she was a filmmaker and we were going to make a documentary about the trip so we needed to sort of build a um a social media profile on it so but i was very much in two minds when i came back because um you know there's the things you should be doing but like deep down i'm like i don't really want to be posting all the time and and stuff like that but i'm i am online because it is a great way to connect with people and to share stories and to get information and um, to share information. So I try and use it from that point of view, but I, I still try and keep things simple. And only I pretty much only do the things that I'm really inspired about and that I want to do, not things that, you know, marketing, you know, would tell you you should be doing this, you should be posting three times a day, you should be doing whatever. I just do what makes me feel good. So, yeah. And then... And, and after that, after New Zealand, you went on a few walks following the, the Pacific, um, the Overland Track. You mentioned... I haven't, I haven't actually been to the Overland Not for... the Overland Track, the Larapinta Trail. Larapinta, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've done a lot of hikes since. I did um, the Bibbulmun Track in Western Australia, which is a thousand kilometres from Perth down to Albany. That was fabulous. How long is that? Is that six, six weeks or something? I have a... It was about eight, seven or eight weeks. Oh. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, a lot of... Shorter trails, you know, 250 here, 200 there. Just, yeah, there's a lot of trails out there to do. So went back to New Zealand and did heaps more hiking there. <coughs> are they listed on your website, some um, of the trails? <coughs> uh, no, I haven't updated. Th there are some trails on my website, but I haven't updated it for a while. Um, yeah, Facebook's where it's at. That's where I okay, put all my – Facebook and Instagram, that's where I put all my travels. Yeah. Um, we're going to wrap it up shortly, I think. Yeah. Well, um, we'll, we'll take a few more questions. Um, yep. Actually, we'll hear from you because we're for it. Yep. Uh, yes. Go for a New Zealand for a, uh, tunes on uh, well, my, I had a little iPod Nano and that just – that'll last a week, easy. No drama. Well, when I went to town like once a week to get food, I'd spend a night in a hostel, have a shower – and charge everything up, yeah. And same with my camera, that easily lasts a week as well. So I, I had no need for, and you know, I didn't have phone cover out there, so the phone was off the whole time. So I didn't need any um, solar charges or anything along the way. Yeah. Yep. And your question down the back? Sorry, what genre is the what? Yeah, what genre is the book? Oh, uh, travel memoir. So, which means it's a um, personal story. So, I talk about the trip that I did, but it's very much an internal story about what's happened in my head and and what I was thinking. And yeah, so it's a it's a story as opposed to a guidebook or anything like that. I think we might leave it there unless there are any other further pressing questions. And will you be hanging around to I'll sign hang around. some books? Yep, yep. We've got some, got some books up the back. Fantastic. Thank you, Joe.